Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. Today is Thursday, August 18th, 2016, so we're talking about energy, materials, and industrials. I am joined in studio by the Motley Fool's one and only, Mr. Taylor Muckerman. How are you today, sir? I'm doing quite all right. You? Uh, not too shabby. I got my coffee. I'm settling in to talk about some energy and... Uh, we should do a show where you don't drink coffee in the morning, just it's, to see you know, what happens. I actually, it's, you know, I, I half the reason I do it is for the prop, uh, just so I have something to do. Branding, I see yeah. that. What does that say? Washingtonian, great places to work. Yeah, for Motley Fool. This is old too. It says 2007. Oh, it's definitely old. Yeah. Props to the mug though for standing up to the test yeah. of time. I um I would use one of the Motley Fool's um, vanilla ice mugs, which was apparently just a practical joke mm-hmm. from a few years ago, but. I try to keep it professional for our podcast. Well, those are so. pretty popular around here. I'd be surprised if you could even find. Don't them. we have like we used to have hundreds or something? Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so first up, you know, people may or may not be aware, but you are one of our co-managers of Full Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the official title? I always forget it. Well, a general manager of like biz dev and marketing, but I'm on I'm an analyst on okay. on the services. Yeah. Um, and uh, you and I, we actually both started out in Fool.com editorial. Yes, we did. I'm still there. And then when did you kind of piece out? Over a little over two years. Two ago. years. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then um, we just uh, we love your thoughts on energy so much that well, we're that's just what like, I did on editorial, and then that's kind of why it was an yeah decent you went, transition to Canada because like a third of their market is energy and material over a third of their market is energy and materials. Yeah, so. it's, it's that and banks. combine that with banking, and you're yeah. darn near seventy percent of the market wrapped it's, up. Um, I remember when I this is like ten years ago. I was looking at all the companies listed on like the Dubai Stock Exchange because I was just screwing around one day. Yeah, it's literally all like banks and insurance companies and a few oil companies. Like, TMF Dubai twenty twenty. Yeah. yeah, we should open up a service there. Why not? Um, so. Uh, you know, it occurred to me recently, I was like, well, we've got this guy that helps run Full Canada. They're crushing it up there. He goes to Toronto occasionally. Occasionally. Um, we really should pick Tyler's, uh, you know, your brain, uh, Taylor's brain, about uh, what's the difference between Canadian oil companies and uh, U.S. industry. In terms of companies, I mean, they, they operate pretty similarly, but they're dealing with um, oil sands for the most part rather than shale oil. like drillers in the United States have been blessed with recently. Um, but when you look at the industry up there, Alberta is See, I'm using Grand, my prop. Alberta is Grand Central Station. Um, if you look at Alberta by itself, it's like I think it's in the top five for oil reserves in the world. On the planet Earth. Yeah. Like it's them, Saudi Arabia, they're off there, the coast. And then off. Plenty of gas. Let's see. Um, if you look at it, um, you know, yeah, third largest crew reserves in the world. They're talking if uh, technology improves, you could see 300 billion barrels of bitumen. Right now, with current technology, around 170 billion barrels. So, for the layman, bitumen is basically like tar. Yeah, so oil sands is what they have up there. It's very hard to extract, very greenhouse and gas intensive. They use those to trucks. I mean, it's, yeah. it's very messy. So, you got in, and to ship it in pipelines, you have to use diluent, which um, they have to basically ship from the United States in a pipeline up to Canada, dilute the, the bitumen so oh that gosh. it flows through the pipeline because it's so thick and nasty that it wouldn't move on its own. So, then you dilute it a little bit, so then you can ship it through pipelines to transport it, which All is kind of this- like crew by rail. Has been a big deal right. for them because um, that was that was a big boon for uh, oil sands because you just load it into a truck or a tanker, 
rather than having to ship diluent up and then combine it. So it kind of removed that step from the process because you could just put bitumen right in the tanks. So all of this sounds expensive. It is. Um, can you just give a ballpark estimate compared to uh, you know last week we talked about the Permian Basin. Like where does Canada fall on the co- uh, globally the cost structure of yeah. things? So depending on the offshore um, field that you're talking about, it's it's upwards in that range of, of offshore drilling. So right now they're definitely not breaking even on the yeah. barrels of oil that they're producing, and and you're also looking at uh, Western Canadian Select being the price. The, the kind of oil that you price in Canada, which is sold at a discount even to West Texas, which is sold because at a discount Because it's so to dirty and well, it's, it's a hassle. Dirty and it's, it's more remote. So one of the big kind of bottlenecks in Canada is, um, is infrastructure to move oil around the country. So you see the Keystone XL got shut down, the plans for that to kind of, you got the, the northern, the southern leg on board, which is totally yeah. United States. Well, and Kinder Morgan leg, just got approved for that $4 billion pipeline up they there. Did, yeah, that was an expansion, I believe. But then you look at Enbridge's northern gateway pipeline, which was supposed to go from Alberta to the west coast so that it gives oil more access to Asia. Um, that was originally approved in 2014, but I believe they just lost an appeals case recently. So, that pipeline was that an was, environmental thing? Yeah, you said yeah. Yeah, it okay. was an environmental thing, and with the the native uh, tribes in mm-hmm. that area, um, there was some some areas where maybe the government and Enbridge overlooked, and so during the appeals process, those were brought up, and now that pipeline is back on the shelf. Got it. So okay. that's one of the biggest issues outside of the the high cost to produce it versus the low cost that it's currently selling at the the. The big thing there is is infrastructure because when you look at Canada, they use hardly any of the oil that they produce. It's pretty much all exported, mostly to the United States. Um, they're big on natural gas and even bigger on hydropower in Canada. So they're one of the cleanest energy producing countries in the world in terms of what they use to produce energy. But the oil that they produce and, and export is very expensive and dirty. Yeah, plus their their population is not big. So <laughs> no, yeah, it's about a, about a tenth of what. It and is what's here. that? There's like ninety percent of the Canadian population lives within one hundred miles of the United States border or something. Yeah, you look like, at Ontario and British Columbia are the hubs, and you've got obviously Calgary is a big city, Montreal is a big Quebec, city, yeah. Quebec. Yeah, but um, if you look at Vancouver and Toronto, um, and then the surrounding areas of those two cities. Yeah, Canada. In so, um, taking a step back, so you Canadian oil sands is basically cost the same as offshore, like it's, in the Gulf of Mexico there, or yeah. something. It gets like, up there. like 60, 70, 80, You need that to justify these projects. Yeah. So if you look at some some recent projects, um, you look at Suncor just developed a thirteen billion dollar project in Fort Hills, but that's like they said, okay, that's pretty much our last major project. For for the foreseeable future, yeah. they're they're turning their mind toward uh, to, towards smaller projects because they're a they're a little bit more predictable. Obviously, they're less expensive, um, and don't want to overcommit, man. We, yeah, you, <laughs> don't, you don't want overproduction at, at this point yeah. in time. Do you um on the flip side of that though? Um, I can't remember when we talked about this, but I seem to remember us talking about like uh you know an offshore auction in the Gulf of Mexico mm-hmm. and like. There were no bidders. Right. Why is because I've I've been looking at Suncor and a couple of other competitors, and they're still producing. They're still doing some projects. So, mm-hmm. is it just because uh, it's on land? Like, what's the the disconnect there? If the costs are the same, like, why is nobody going to the Gulf, but Canada's still doing some stuff? 
Well, the, I'm pretty sure with those auctions, you know, you've got a limited time frame that you have to drill or okay. be, begin producing before the money that you spend at the auction is just a, a sunk cost. Um, I guess it's a sunk cost immediately, but right. then then it's basically just disappears. You got you get nothing for your money if you don't drill soon enough. And a lot of these companies in Canada um, have the rights to that land, so they, they can, own it and that's it. Yeah, then, yeah, they might as well produce and and so you've got the transportation is there. Offshore, you have to have a unique transportation for each well because mm-hmm. there's not these pipelines crisscrossing the Gulf of Mexico, thankfully. Um, but with the oil sands, you know, these companies, like we talked about last week, companies have to keep the lights on, but they are trimming back. If you look at um, 2014, oil spending was like around $80, $80 billion. This year, two years later, it's around $30 billion for the full year of 2016. So it's the biggest two-year right. change since they started measuring that in like the 1940s. I I'll never forget we saw that uh, the capex is now down to like 1952 levels or yeah, something it's bad. like it's just like <laughs> Eisenhower was in the president yeah. or like um, so taking a you know an investor perspective to all this mm-hmm. it sounds like based upon all that we've discussed in this show that you know you know ignoring you know nationalities and tax effects and all that kind of fun stuff um do you need higher oil prices to even think about investing in a canadian oil company cuz in the 50 you know 40 50 dollar world should we kind of be looking in the permian basin cough <laughs> uh sure i mean you look at Suncor; it's integrated, so it's got the full operations just like and their like refining operations have been doing well yeah they have um and so that may be a company you look at. Um, for us in Stock Advisor Canada, we don't, we've never recommended an energy or oil and gas producer. Okay. We have quite a few um, pipelines and quite a few services companies on mm-hmm. our on our scorecard, and so that's the method we've been choosing to address the Canadian energy market because we're benchmarked against the S&P TSX and so you have to have energy exposure because once energy started to rebound earlier this year it was you don't want to lag it obviously right. um so we we did quite well during the downturn comparatively um but once that uptick hit you know it was a noticeable um lacking portion of our portfolio but we do have you know we, we've got several companies that either maintain pipelines own pipelines that go out there and provide equipment in the drilling fields so We've got that exposure that way. We we prefer. I think it's kind of permeates through the fool really to to stay away from producers, large part because commodities are so cyclical. Right. And, and the services companies are affected as well, but maybe not to the same degree. Got it. Cool. All right. So moving on. Um, it's been a while since we did this, but uh, we got some listener questions. Yeah, we did, didn't we? Um, Leland Payne out there in Fairview, Texas, wrote us in and uh, says, Sean and Taylor, mm-hmm. on Friday, my friends over at CNBC talked a lot about the potential that ExxonMobil, Chevron, etc., could cut their dividends if WTI went below $40 and stayed below $50 the rest of this year and the next year. The point was made that XOM could more easily increase its debt to maintain the dividend, but my question is, couldn't they sell some stock they uh, could have bought back in the past year to keep paying the dividend as well? According to Reuters, XOM purchased $210 billion of stock in the decade ending December 31st, 2015. Uh, so basically, should Exxon just sell some of its stock on the open market that it's bought back and it's probably just sitting there in the treasury stock portion of the balance sheet? Or should they take on debt? Should they cut the dividend? Like, what do you 
I definitely don't see a dividend cut in the future. Um, you saw Phillips cut their dividend earlier this year by like 75%, I believe. Um, but for the most part, the other the other majors are standing pat. Um, I don't see Exxon cutting its dividend. And I don't know if they would sell back shares to the market because it buying back shares has been their thing for so long. Right. I think that, buying back shares in the dividend right, is their thing. That is their thing. Ar- arguably, is, it's more their thing than producing oil. <laughs> in the last couple of years, yes, the re- reserve replacement ratio has not been all Nothing. there. Yeah, what did they hit sixty or seventy last year? I don't remember year? what it was last year, but I mean, their long-term average is over a hundred. Right. But the last couple of years, not so much. So I mean, you look at them. Their their solvency ratios aren't aren't terrible. I mean, debt to equity is twenty five percent. Debt to their interest ex- EBIT to their interest expense is twenty one times. So they can clearly take on a little bit more debt if they need to, um, which I think would be their their method because when you look at this company, they're very very highly rated in the debt markets. So yeah. they can get that cheap interest rate. Um, cheaper than pretty much everybody else in the business. So the cost of capital, obviously, for debt's way lower than equity. So they should yeah. go that route if they were. To and do if you sell equity, you're you're diluting your shareholders, which is the exact opposite of shareholder return. And that those two methods, like we just talked about, have been pretty much the entire shareholder return portfolio from Exxon the last few years. Got so it. You remove that, and uh, you lose some shareholder trust. So uh, you got a you got a tweet. I did. Taylor, I like this is yeah. Um, do you want to read it or should I? Uh, yeah, I don't have it up on oh, my okay. computer, so go for so, it. So uh, Ben Thomas tweeted at uh, your friend of mine, Taylor Muckerman, on August eighth at T Muckerman. Question: With oil companies cutting exploration budgets, how will this eventually affect uh, affect contract driven midstream companies? Oh, so contract based pipelines, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you and uh, you and Crow, man, you guys were all about the fee based. Yeah. Pipeline guys, um, but there—that's not always the case with some of them. Um, is this going to eventually affect that? Because the production in a field that a pipeline's kind of close to starts dropping. Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> it's a question I've definitely wrestled with myself because I'm an investor in Spectra Energy. I believe that's the only pipeline company I'm invested in. Um, no, actually, Sunoco. Um, but uh, I think that could certainly become a problem down the line. Um, but if you look at some of the, you want to be invested in a pipeline that has access to the major fields. That mm-hmm. regardless, that will be probably be the last witness a downturn in production, like the Eagle Ford, the Permian. Yeah. Um, you want access to natural natural gas demand centers like the north the northeast that so avoid pipelines that are in the mid-continent and stuff <laughs> you, yeah you could argue that but again that's where a lot of the refiners are okay um, yeah so I think you're you're quite a ways away from having to worry about a shortage of oil transport and natural gas being transported especially natural gas yeah which is again spectra is mostly natural gas um, Maybe I think oil pipelines you might have a little bit bigger of a worry sooner, but I certainly don't think that that's any time within the next five to ten years. Um, just because there is so much potential with, that we can flip the switch pretty easily. We just talked about last week EOG, Pioneer Natural Resources, and Continental talking about ten to fifteen percent production growth for at the next, fifty bucks at for 50 the next bucks. five years. Yeah, yeah. So and those are three of the biggest names in the shale oil business. Um, EOG being the largest in the U.S. shale oil business, so um, I'm not too worried about U.S. Con- the continental U.S. production waning to the point where continental U.S. pipelines 
are, are really feeling the pinch. Got it. Um, so uh, last week we talked about um, Donald Trump's energy plan yes, based upon what he said publicly and on his website. And uh, bottom line, cut regulations. Cut regulations, um, all uh, all four with coal, all four with fossil fuels. Um, not not trimming everything back renewably, but um, that's not going to be his focus because uh, what he said was basically we're going to focus on resources that are more economically viable at this point in time. Even though solar and wind are coming closer and closer into parity with oil and natural gas, um, he's choosing to focus on on coal, yeah. natural gas, and oil, saying that he wants to bring coal back 100%. To which point of time he's referencing as 100%, I don't know, but that would... I think that's like a reference to like the focus as opposed to an actual growth rate. Yeah. Like, uh, I don't... Yeah. Anyway. Um, so... This episode, we wanted to hit, of course, the Democratic nominee, yeah. Hillary Clinton's energy plan. Can't talk about um, one without the other. The uh, she actually has said a lot. Um, do you want to hunt it down? Like, yeah, we can give some. I mean, it's almost a mirror image of of Donald Trump's plans. Uh, she's all in on solar. She wants uh, half a billion solar panels by twenty twenty, which that seems... would be like a seven hundred percent increase. Yeah, I saw that, and I was like, wow, and that's kind of high. Renewable energy. <laughs> For every home in the United States, um, again, very well, that's in the next decade. So, the half a billion panels by the end of her first term, if she's elected, um, and then the the renewable energy for every home in the, in the United States, that's within the next ten years. So, all in on renewable energy. Um, though she is throwing some support towards coal, maybe not in the form of job creation. But she did say that she wants to, you know, allocate around thirty billion dollars to make sure that coal families um, that have been in the business relying on that for their retirement. She wants to make sure that they're taken care of, um, because yeah. as we talked about last week, maybe Trump can help it for the next few years. But these folks need to worry about, the, you know, the next decade. Coal plants are being now. shut down. Is right. The bottom line. We, we talked about coal plants becoming more efficient per. Per miner, um, coal production in the United States peaking about a decade ago. Coal employment peaking in the 80s. So, um, I think that that might actually be more beneficial for these coal families to have this money set aside to make sure that if a coal company goes into bankruptcy, the government might be able to step in and make sure that your retirement plan and your health insurance are still active. Yeah, yeah. It seems. Because it was kind of a top-down thing. Because she starts off her energy plan on her website. She actually, it, it's very blatant. You can find it easily. Is uh, she just talked about climate change? Mm -hmm. um, and she talked about meeting the uh, the Paris Accords that were recently agreed to and getting U.S. emissions down between 26 and 28 percent below 2005 levels by 2025. Yep. So that's nine years from now. Um, I believe Donald Trump wants to. Completely abandon the Paris, the Paris Accord Accords, and, yeah, and and stop giving money to the UN for climate change initiatives. Yeah, um, and then she she would go out and give these speeches, like she would say, like Bill Clinton's going to be doing a lot of economicsy type things, sure. and he'd be focusing on coal country and stuff. Um, I mean, I you have to figure that he's a resource she's going to use. Yeah. So, um, but then yeah, looking at her climate change, she wants to reduce American oil use by about a third. And then uh, rely, continue to rely on nuclear power. It's about 20% of our U.S. power generation now. It's a clean source. It's about 60% of our zero uh, carbon emissions power power load uh, 
with. You're looking at solar and wind and hydro being a, another. It's been portion so of that. interesting to me that other developed countries have been stepping back from nuclear ever since the uh, Jap- uh, Japan disaster yeah, in 2010 yeah. or 11. Uh, I think it was 2000. I think it was 10. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Um, but uh, you know, you had all these countries shuttering nuclear reactors. Yeah. It's like, uh, do we really want to be doing this? And she's not scared or anything like that. No, apparently. so so Trump, in his plan, he said he would allow them to live out their current um, contracted life. Um, but but uh, Hillary wants to try to extend some of these, if not all of them, um, because they are such an important baseload supply of power. And aside from the potential disaster, at, while they're operating. They're they're a clean source of power. Right. Uh, you have again. You have people arguing about the disposal of the the nuclear waste once it's used up. Um, that is obviously an environmental concern. But while they're operating, these are clean sources of power. And I feel like I can't remember an incident in the United States where a nuclear power plant was leaking very like harmful tons of fuel. Yeah, now. harmful amounts of radiation. Um, you look at Fukushima. That was just that was a terrible confluence of like drastic events. Right. I mean, it was tsunamis. A terrible situation. Yeah. Well, so. and you can make the argument like Japan's not the best place to put a nuclear reactor. They're an island. It's an island. Fair enough. On the Ring of Fire. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're relatively relatively safe comparatively. Right. Um, and and the the history here in the United States. Has a great tar- has a great track record. So. Yeah. So, um, bottom line, it sounds like I don't know sh- uh, if and when Hillary Clinton won, it'd be good for renewable energy companies. Yeah, I don't. I don't. It seems like she wants to accelerate it because that seven hundred percent growth over the next four years in solar panels is definitely beyond. It seems so hard. Beyond most predictions. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. You. I don't know if that's going to be like government subsidies or or what, how she wants to implement that, but that's the focus. So yeah, you would expect solar and wind to probably benefit from from a Hillary can, uh, presidency. But again, as we talk about many times at the Fool, these are four maybe eight year timeframes, and the president doesn't have all encompassing power, right? right. You still have the Supreme Court and and both houses of Congress. So you're looking at you're looking at these campaign tactics not always going to work out the way they seem. Right. So we don't necessarily encourage investors to invest based on um, campaign stumping. Got it. So uh, bottom line, not surprising, politicians. It's Republicans, things, but... Democrats. Republicans <laughs> want to support fossil fuels. Democrats want to support renewable fuels. Um, this is not surprising. This is not surprising. No. Cool. All right. Well, thanks for your thoughts. Yeah, I appreciate yeah. it. Have a good one. You too. And that is it for us, folks. If you're a loyal listener and have questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Just email us at industryfocus at fool.com. Once again, that's industryfocus at fool.com. And as always, people in this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against those stocks, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear in this program. For Taylor Markman, I am Sean O'Reilly. Thanks for listening, and Fool on! Fool on!